Amen. Well, good morning. Welcome to First Baptist Church. It is so good to be with you again today, to come together to worship the Lord, and uh, to, to look forward to God's grace uh, being made manifest and known to us. I don't know if anyone saw the irony in the songs, but we're talking about Noah today, and like all of the songs that Pastor Nathan chose are about water as a good thing. <laughs> Did you do that on purpose, or was that just coincidental looking towards the grace of God? I mean, it's incredible irony that every song had something about the grace of God as water form, and we're going to talk about God destroying the earth through water this morning. Uh, the irony wasn't lost on me. I wanted to share it with you this morning. You're welcome. But it is good to be with you this morning. It is good to worship with you and to look into God's word together. If you were to walk into the Myers household and make your way into our kitchen at just about any point in time during the course of the year, you will see on that refrigerator a plethora of things. Now, I know, I know you're assuming that what you're going to see is, is children's good papers, but come on, it's the 21st century. Who does things in paper anymore? And who has time to print things off of the computer to put them on the refrigerator? So it's not that, but we regularly get invitations, if you look on our refrigerator, all over the, in, the refrigerator, invitations, a lot of them are outdated, and because if, you, if you're a high school graduate, college graduate, and you send us one of your things that has your picture on it, we leave it on the refrigerator for the year following your graduation, and we pray for you. So there's a bunch of pictures of students, but they're invitations, right? On that, with that picture is generally a thing telling you that on such and such a date, there's going to be a, a party, a celebration for such and such a student on the occasion of graduating high school. Right? right now, there's one on the, on, on the refrigerator for a wedding, that a wedding is on such and such a date, and a lot of times we hang it up, and with it has a little card that's, that tells us that we're supposed to RSVP by a certain date. Now, we aren't always incredibly good about doing that, um, but, but you, you've got the invitation there. And the point of an invitation, again, is to tell you that there is going to be a thing that is going to happen on a certain day at a certain time. And you are invited to come be a part of whatever that thing is. Something that's amazing about an invitation, though, something that I've learned over the, over the years, it's important, you might want to take note of this, it's important for you to remember, is, is this. An invitation is only wall art if you don't act upon it. Right? An invitation is nothing more than a pretty picture or a pretty design that you put up somewhere or that you set on a counter. If you don't do something, if you don't respond to said invitation in, a, in, in an appropriate way, the grace that is contained within that invitation is in part lost, right? You don't experience the, the joy of the party. You don't experience the joy of the celebration. You don't get to eat the good food and drink the good drink. You don't get to see friends and family. You don't get to, well, I don't dance, but you maybe dance. You don't get to dance or see someone trying to dance like a fool. You have to see it all secondhand. But an invitation is only good if you do what the invitation instructs you to do, right? I think this is an important concept for us. It seems self-evident, but the reality of the Bible is that over and 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 over again, we have in the Bible invitations from the God of the universe to join him in his work and to step into his grace. And so often I think that we hold them and we fail to act upon them. And then we wonder, where is God? What is God doing? Well, he done told you and invited you to come be a part of it. In order for us to experience God's grace, we have to act upon the invitations he offers. I think we see that clearly in the life and example of Noah. 
As we turn our attention to the word of God this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, I do pray that you would open our eyes to the reality of your great salvation and the great invitation that you continue to make to humanity throughout history to step into your grace, to experience the salvation that comes through you and you alone, to experience the rescue and restoration that comes from our sins being cleansed. God, I pray that you would speak to us, that you would speak through me in these moments. In Jesus' name, amen. We have you a Bible. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. It's our launching part point for this morning. And we're going to start like we do have the last several Sundays. We're going to start in Hebrews 11 verse 7. We're going to jump back to Genesis. But this Sunday we're also going to come back to Hebrews 11 and kind of camp there at the end. But starting in Hebrews 11 verse 7. And it says this. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen in in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. Now turn with me back to Genesis chapter 6. And let's look at the account about which the writer of Hebrews is talking. We're going to be in Genesis 6, starting in verse 5. Genesis 6, starting in verse 5. And it says this. And the Lord saw the great wickedness of, of the human race had become on the earth. And that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth. And his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created. And with them, the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And this is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. And God saw how corrupt the earth had become. For all the people of the earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people. For the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening one cubit high all around. Put a door on the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You will bring in, to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground, you will come, come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. In verse 22, 
And Noah did everything just as God commanded him. So here we, we started back with, with Noah and the reality of, of him being this hero of faith, this, this paragon of faith that did this amazing thing for God. And here we have the explanation of what that amazing thing was. And there are a lot of things that, that we need to learn here, but you, you notice that the good news starts with a whole, is surrounded by a whole lot of bad news in this particular passage. And we see that sin had plagued the earth. That it had become a problem, and it had become such a big problem, such a pervasive problem, that God was just done with it. I think in order for us to truly understand what's going on and the reality of, of how our relationship is broken with God, we have to start with sin. Something that's not a real popular or a real fun thing to talk about, but it's an important thing for us to understand. So we've got to start there. And I think the important thing for us in the context of understanding and talk about being people of faith and living by faith is this. That sin ultimately is the re result of misplaced faith. Sin is the result of misplaced faith. Yes, the outcome of sin is us doing a wrong thing and displeasing God. But, but our actions in that, in doing the thing that displeases God, is demonstrating where our true faith lies. And the reality that we have to deal with, each of us today, and they had to deal with in the truth of this text, is this. Is that humanity has an extremely serious heart problem. Humanity has a heart problem. Something that we understand in the, in the medical field, right? Don't have to do a lot of research. The, the truth is the state of the heart will dictate the ability of the body to act appropriately, right? The state of, that's true, doc, right? That, that if the heart is not functioning properly, the body cannot function properly. Everything the body does is contingent upon the heart functioning the way that it is supposed to function. When a person develops significant heart issues, it dramatically impacts and reduces the ability for them to live life the way God had created them to do it. The heart is the motor that keeps the rest of the body running. And when a heart is unhealthy, the body is physically limited, often in extreme ways. The truth is, a sick heart will lead to a sick body and ultimately leads to death. Jesus himself notes that, that whatever it is that's in the heart is going to be found in the rest of the body, that out of the heart, the actions are going to come, that, that what the heart pumps into the rest of the body, how the heart pumps into the rest of the body is going to, to, to determine the body's ability to function properly. And if the heart has disease in it, the body is then diseased. Now, this is this is a very controversial passage, one that we don't like to read, because we like to believe that man, humanity, is basically good. That if you were to break away all the evil and, and all of the things that we do wrong, that at our core, we are basically good people. Brothers and sisters, Scripture does not support that. And we see it very clearly in this text. This has got to be one of the most discouraging passages in the Bible when you put it all together says in verse 5, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart were only evil all the time. Like That's a whole lot of words. Just the inclinations of the thoughts, the, the, the starting points of the thoughts, the, the very core, the seed of our actions starts with, to some degree, a sense of wickedness. Well, well, how do we understand this? How did we get here? 
Because this verse presents for us what I would argue is the antithesis to the gospel. It's also the reason that it's necessary, isn't it? That because of the depth of our wickedness and our failure, we can't fix it on our own. We are in need of saving. And this, what we see in in chapter 6 of Genesis, verse 5, is the logical outworking that was sowed into the human heart in Genesis chapter 3. The human heart was infected by sin at the fall, and that sickness has been passed on to every subsequent generation. Turn with me back again to Genesis 3, if you will. Genesis 3, verses 1 to 7, tell us this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the, any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden. But God did say, you must not eat from the fruit that is on the, in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die. <laughs> you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Interesting truth, as we look at all of these, there's a contrast to the by faith and what it looks like to not live by faith. And what's interesting to me is how often it comes back to the fall. And the reality of what's demonstrated in Adam and Eve in that original failure in the original sin. There are some important aspects for us here in this fall that we need to not miss. Because what happens at the fall has less to do with the fruit that was eaten and the recalibration that takes part in the heart, place in the heart as a result of eating said fruit. One, we need to recognize this. The original temptation came from where? External. The original temptation is all external. Right? It's not that Eve was just sitting there staring at the fruit saying, man, why would God tell me not to eat that? That's a good-looking fruit. I should try some. Not a thought in her head at that point in time. There's no indication in the text. At that point, Adam and Eve are living happy-go-lucky lives. They are buck-naked and do not care. They have no idea about the potential problems and realities that could be in the world. It is not a thing. They are living completely in, we go back to creation that we looked at a few weeks ago, they are completely living in a world that is just consumed with the goodness and grace of God. They are fully living under his protection and his provision. They have nothing to worry about. Even work is pleasurable. At this point, the world itself, the earth is cooperating with them. Everything is working together collaboratively to to function the way that God had created it. And they're, they're walking around minding their own business, and then a voice from the outside comes and says, Hey, Eve, uh, Adam, come here. And just so that we don't get it twisted, Adam was probably there the whole time and had every inclination of what was going on. This is not a, oh, Eve messed it up and women are worse than men. No. If anything, Adam standing there like a doofus, not saying anything, is the worst one off in this. 
But Adam's, they're standing there, and the serpent says, external, right? An external temptation. The serpent says to her, hey, that fruit over there, did God really say that you couldn't have that? Why would he say that to you? Did he really say, oh, yeah, she, she says, yeah, God did say don't eat that fruit. He absolutely said that. God did say. He said we could eat of anything else, but just not that. Serpent, well, why, why would God say that to you? Why would God want to hold you back? You know what it is, is that God knows that if you eat that fruit, you're going to be like him. You're going to ascend and you're going to be in the place of God. And if you eat that, you're going to have the ability to see both good and evil. At this point, it is important for us to recognize that the temptation is all 100% external. We like to think of that, that that's the way that temptation works for us today. But I'm going to show you here in a minute that that's not the way it works for us. All external. Now, what was the reason not to eat the fruit? Now, the temptation was to read the, eat the fruit because you will be like God, seeing both good and evil. It's interesting that God's warning was, don't, be, don't eat the fruit because you'll die and you'll be able to see both good and evil. The, the temptation and, and the, the warning are the same. It's just twisting it. God is saying, hey, you being able to see both good and evil, not necessarily a good thing. Serpent saying, you being able to see both good and evil is the ultimate thing. God's saying, you are complete exactly like you are, living in faith and trust in me. And, and it may seem limited, but you living in trust that I've got your best interest in heart and living in the good that I've created, that's enough. The devil says, or serpent says, hey, there's something more. You are incomplete. Your life could be more full. There is more for you to experience, and God is just trying to keep you from living your best life. The fruit's good. Not just the fruit, but the result thereof. The reason not to eat the fruit was couched in the warning of the Creator and faith in His goodness and provision. Again, the fall of humanity has nothing to do with a magical, mystical fruit and everything to do with misplaced faith. Adam and Eve put their trust and faith in the serpent and in what they believed was their own self-interest and self-understanding. And by eating the forbidden fruit, Adam and Eve were able to see both good and evil because they had chosen evil. Understand that that's what happens at, at the fall. That the choice was do I live in trust and faith in the good that God has created, or do I decide that I want something more, and so I'm going to add evil to the mix? There was no understanding of evil. You know what? You're, people, when we say that, that man was basically good at creation, is completely wrong. Humanity was absolutely good at creation. It was everything that God intended it to be. But we corrupted ourselves. We chose that. We opted in to evil. The ability to see both good and evil and the responsibility to discern and decide between them is a consequence, not a reward. And as a result of the fall, temptation finds in its genesis internally, coming from our own hearts and inevitably leads to destruction. See, that's where the shift happens. Before the fall, temptation was external. 
Sure, it was a crafty snake, but come on, people. You see a talking snake, and your first thought is not, eh, this is a problem. Like, the snake doesn't even have to talk to me. It just has to be in the room. And I get that God puts enmity between man, but come on. None of the other animals to this point are talking. Like, that's not a big hint to you that, hey, maybe there's something off here. But there's a shift that happens. Temptation is external. All they know is good. They are living completely in the trust of, in the goodness and grace of God. They eat the fruit. And, and we see in James the full result of that because James explains to us where the reality of our sin comes from and where temptation is really couched. It says this in James 1.13, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each, listen to this, But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. Do you see the difference? In Genesis, at the original temptation, it's some crazy talking snake, which is dangerous and freaky enough at that point. But, but we look throughout the rest of the Bible, and we see it clearest in James, but there are other places, and from then on, the temptation is coming from within. Sure, there are external sources, but there always was. The fruit was always there. The fruit tempting us has always, the fruit calling our name has always been there. The difference is, now our internal voice is agreeing with the external voice. Hey, maybe I am missing something. Maybe that is good. And our natural proclivity, our natural draw as human beings is to look for something more to complete us. To look for something more to make life all that it could be. To to look for something more that will give us a little bit more control. To look for something more that will make us that much better. And the temptation now is couched within us. It is planted in our hearts. Humanity was created good, but chose to do evil. And the evil in our lives froze from our own hearts and self-serving. Conversely, the good in our world comes when our faith is returned to where it belongs. James goes on to say that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights with whom there is no turning. That's the battle that's going on within each of us. Is am I going to choose to trust myself in the external voices that are calling to me, or am I going to trust in the good God that made me and is calling me into relationship with him? And sin happens when we decide that we know better and we're going to do our own thing rather than doing God's thing. Truth is this. Sin is the original pandemic. And we're all infected, and it's terminal without treatment. We see God announcing how terminal that is and how pervasive it is in Genesis 6, 6 through 7. Again, some of the saddest verses in Scripture. And it says this, Genesis 6, 6. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth. And his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created. And with them the animals... The birds and creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. God is deeply troubled to the point of regretting that he has made humanity. The truth is that God is heartbroken by the sin and the self-serving, self-seeking of humanity. 
The cycle of, the, the, this cycle of sickness, of, of sin, continues to plague us today. And, and we see it again throughout Scripture. If we look at Isaiah 64, 6, it tells us that all of our righteous acts even are like filthy rags. That even our best attempts at doing good and being what God wanted us to, to be on our own are corrupted by our sin. Romans 3, 19 through 12 says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one seeks God. All have turned aside, and together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The wickedness of our world is not new, a new thing, and none of us is above it. And I would argue if we look throughout history, there's a reality we can see of the wickedness of humanity ebbing and flowing throughout history. Romans tells us that the wages of sin is death, and the truth is that each of us has earned a paycheck. Which brings us to the reality of what God prophesies that's going to come, and the warning that comes to Abraham, or to Noah, excuse me. Now, people struggle with this. There's a lot of people that don't believe in the goodness and grace of God because of what happens in the story of Noah, because of the destruction of this pervasive worldwide flood. And we say to ourselves, well, how can I believe in a completely good and gracious and merciful God that decides that he's going to destroy all of creation? How can he be good and be so judgmental? Well, here's the truth, my friends, that, that what God is offering humanity in the destruction is justice. That, that that is what was earned. That Again, that is what is deserved, that all of us have sinned. All of us are infected. And God warned Adam and Eve by themselves at first that if you eat this fruit, you will surely die. The destruction is earned. When, when God punishes humanity, he is giving us exactly what we have earned, exactly what we deserve, and exactly what we have chosen for ourselves. And that's what we see with the flood is God's laying out that you have earned this. Every, every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart were only evil all the time. There is no wiggle room there whatsoever. Y'all are sitting here today going, man, why did I come to church today? This is the worst sermon I have ever heard. I feel so bad right now. It's going to get better. Because this is what we see in Noah. What we see in Noah is the reality and the pervasiveness of God's grace. We see the invitation to step into God's goodness and the salvation that he offers. And what we see in the life of Noah is this, that properly placed faith, Against misplaced faith, right? Properly placed faith puts us in position to experience God's grace. Properly placed faith puts us in position to experience God's grace. Faithful action naturally puts us in place to experience God's faithfulness. And God offers Noah and his family the salvation needed by his grace. But in order to experience it, they had to act. You know, the passage tells us that, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The word favor throughout the Bible, we, we, we like to read that and we like to think of that as being the, the, the goodness of God, and it is. But a better word for that is grace. Noah found grace 
in the eyes of God. It wasn't that Noah was out without sin. As we look down into verse 9, it tells us that Noah was a bright, righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. In essence, that verse isn't telling us that Noah was out without sin. It's just telling us that Noah was a, a whole lot better than everyone else. And God, in his grace, offers Noah and his family salvation. God provides the plan but Noah and family have to follow the plan. And if they follow the plan, we see that God makes them prosper. Now again, Noah didn't earn salvation. He simply walked the path of salvation God had provided for him. Salvation is never earned, but it is lived into. God paves the path by his grace, and we have to step into it verse that keeps coming up, and I unapologetically will keep bringing it up in, in the context of our talk about faith, is Ephesians 2, 2, 8 through 9. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one should boast. Our salvation is a gift of God's grace and God's grace alone. And that grace is made available to us through his invitation. The question is, will we step into it? Will we live into it? And this is the grace of God, that even though we have broken his heart, time without number by our sin, that God continues to make his grace available to us. That even though we continue to choose evil over and over and over again, God continues to offer us his good. Verse 8 again, but Noah found grace in the eyes of God. Now there's some interesting wordplay going on in, in Genesis here that's lost on us in our English language. The, the, the word Noah is actually two consonants that we would make in, in the form of N and H. And his name means, in Hebrew, rest. Which I find incredibly ironic given the world that he lived in. Right? That is the humor of God, that the guy's name would be rest in the most tumultuous time on, on the planet, in, in the midst of the biggest storm in all of human history. The guy's name is rest. Well, how does Noah find rest? Well, you know what? If you flip Noah's name around, two simple letters, and you make it backwards, it is the word for grace. Noah one way, flip it around grace the other. Noah was able to find rest and make his way through the storm because of the grace of God. But how? How was Noah able to live into this grace by, of God? Well, by faith. We need to flip back to Hebrews because the writer of Hebrews qualifies and explains a lot of what's going on here in, in Genesis chapter 6. Hebrews 11, verse 7 again, it says, By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. And by his faith he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. So what all do we see in here? Because the writer of Hebrews provides us with features of faith that need in the life of Noah that we need to understand and emulate in our own lives. Well, first is this. Faith will lead us to respect God's voice above all others, including our own. 
Faith will lead us to respect God's voice above all others, including our own. We see in in verse 7 of of Hebrews 11 that Noah had, quote, a, a holy fear. And the word translated holy fear is used several times throughout the book of Hebrews. And each time, this word holy fear carries with it the idea of reverence and submission. That, that, God's, that, that Noah's understanding of God moved him to act in a certain way. Hebrew, uh, Proverbs 9.10 tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We struggle with this again in our modern economy, even in the church. Fear has become something in the church that we even want to sing about no longer having. We want to mitigate fear. We want to get rid of those feelings inside of us that don't necessarily feel good at the moment. But the Bible tells us that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Like, oh, why would we have to fear a good and gracious God? Because he's still holy. And it's not necessarily a fear of God that comes from the understanding that God is waiting with a mallet in heaven, just waiting to smite us when when something goes wrong. I was talking to Larry, and I won't give names, but Pastor, uh, uh, not Pastor Larry, Larry Lee was talking to me at lunch earlier this week, and he he told me about uh, someone that he knows that was praying, and in the prayer prayed, Dear Lord, I pray that you would smite this person. And I think so often we, are, we, we walk around as if that's a legitimate concern for us and, and, and that God is waiting in heaven, even for us as followers of God, that God is waiting with, with a whacker, just waiting for us to turn the wrong way and, and he's going to just bring it to us when we got people come into this church. And, and I, I find it a little bit funny, but they walk in and they're like, hey, you might want to stand back. God might strike me tonight. I'm stepping in a church, might burst into flames. That's not how God works. But that's the kind of fear that we think of. That, that's, that's not the fear that the Bible is talking about when, when it talks about our fear of God. In fact, the Bible teaches over and over and over again that fear can be both valuable and appropriate, particularly in our relationship with the Lord. This type of fear is a reverent awe. It is an all-encompassing respect. It is an understanding of the greatness and all-surpassing glory of God and our smallness in light of that. It is an understanding of the holiness of God and our unholiness. But more importantly, it's an understanding of our proper place in light of who God is and the inspiration and reminder to continue to follow him. Noah had a holy fear. Noah understood the greatness of God. Noah, like his ancestor before him, walked humbly with God and submitted to God and, and walked close, just like Enoch. He's, he's walking with God throughout his life. And Noah is adjusting his life based on his understanding of God. And you and I are to do the same thing. His understanding of God influenced his actions. But not just his understanding, but also what he heard from God. God's word and what God said to him took precedence. And God's warning to Noah forced him to choose between trusting in conventional wisdom, the understanding of human history even, and his own life and what God was saying to him. We see in, again in verse 7, it says, By faith, when warned about things not yet seen, in fully, holy fear, Noah built an ark to save his family. That word for warning is the word chromatizo. 
The word is used to describe divine communication to guide God's people. The word warning is essentially divine revelation. That God revealed something to Noah that was beyond his understanding and expectation. And Noah had to decide what he was going to do. Now, we, we're, we're familiar with warning labels in our society, aren't we? Because not only are we sinful, but we apparently are exceedingly stupid. I, I actually remember exactly where I was in 1992 when it came out on the news that the woman had spilled the coffee on her lap at McDonald's. Y'all remember that? 1992, woman goes to McDonald's in Albuquerque, New Mexico, buys a cup of coffee, puts it in her lap, and is playing with the lid. The lid pops open, and she burns her lap. And so she sues McDonald's for several million, $3 million because she spilled hot coffee on her lap. And some judge decided, not her fault, it didn't say it was hot. So now if you go to McDonald's and you buy a cup of coffee, it says, warning, contents hot, could burn you. Duh. You know what's even funnier to me, though, about that? Is how many people still act cavalier with their coffee and still burn their dumb selves. Bible tells us that the human heart is deceitful above all things. Who can trust it? I, who am I to argue with the truth of God's word? I agree with that. Human heart is deceitful above all things. But can we agree that stupid is a really close second? I'm not trying to be frivolous. I'm not, I'm not trying to be flippant right now. This is just truth. Like how many times do we have to make the mistake over and over again? How many times do we have to see the warning and ignore it before we finally will do what's expected and what is right? And the thing about God's warning is that God's warnings are not just prohibitions. I mean, part of the problem is our sinfulness. Part of our stupidity flows from the fact that we are rebellious. And as soon as you tell someone, don't do this, we're going to be like, well, you can't tell me what to do. But the thing is that God's warnings generally aren't just don't do this. Rather, God's warning are, instead of doing this, do this. God warning isn't just meant to stop our own sin-sick ways, but to lead us into experiencing his salvation. God doesn't just say, don't do this thing. There are times where that is true. Scripture does, in fact, say, don't do this thing. But you know what? More often than not, there's a caveat or an addition to that where God is saying, instead, do this thing. Don't do this thing. It's going to bring destruction. It's going to bring pain. It's going to bring hurt. And God says, instead, return to me and do this thing. Follow what I've asked. Walk in my steps. In Genesis 6, 13 through 17, God gives the warning, but also gives where Noah is to move. Right? It's the, it's the old Sunday school song. Right? The Lord told Noah there's going to be a floody, floody. Lord told Noah there's going to be a floody, floody. Put those animals out of the muddy, muddy children of the Lord. You thank my wife for that. I wasn't going to sing it. And she's like, you have to. <laughs> but it's true, right? It's simple. It's so simple that it's in the song. And children are like, well, yeah, there's going to be a huge flood and everything's going to drown. Get in the boat. But you know what? Noah still had to make a choice, didn't he? God says there's going to be a flood. 
There's going to be water, and it's going to cover the earth. And, and Noah has zero experiences in his life that would validate what God is saying. You realize that historically, up to this point, Noah has never seen rain. The Bible tells us that there was a mist, and God would water the earth through a mist. And it's believed that, that there was uh, something going on in the, the atmosphere that we don't see today. And there was the water above, right, and the water below. And so that there's water under the crust of the earth and water above. And so the world is watering, it's self-irrigating. Self Noah's never seen rain. Like you and I, we get flooding, right? Like we live in Seymour, Indiana. We understand flooding. Noah wouldn't. So Noah hears from God, hey, I'm going to destroy this earth through this huge flood. Noah's like, rain? Flood? What? And so Noah at the beginning, were he to heed God's warning, it would undoubtedly make him look foolish in the eyes of those around him. And maybe even cause him to question his own sanity. And I'm, I'm going to tell you that there are a lot of things in Scripture that God says to us about how we should function in our lives and things we should do and ways that we should follow him. And, and there are times that we look at the reality of God's world and we look at the reality of our experience and we're like, really? Is that really important? Is that really how it is? And God is asking us in faith to trust that he knows even when we don't, to trust that his warnings and that his word is true, that God is going to deliver on his promises, whether they be promises for destruction or promises for good, and for us to trust him and move into the good grace that he offers. What God says must take priority in our lives, even if it conflicts with what we currently see or understand. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 tells us, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not in your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Faith will lead us to respect God's voice above all others, including our own. But faith will also lead us to obey God. And trust is of little value if it doesn't lead to action. In Hebrews eleven seven again, we see that Noah's all-inspired fear of the Lord led him to act on God's warning by building a massive floating barn. And, and Noah's obedience is a central feature of the faith of Noah in the Genesis account. If we look at Genesis again, we ended on verse, we ended on verse 22 of Genesis 6, right? And it culminates with God saying, Noah, do this thing, and this is what I'm going to bring about, and this is what it tells us. And Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Well, and then it tells us that the Lord says some more things to Noah, and we come to verse 5 of chapter 7, and you know what it says? And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. And we go to, to chapter 9, or 7, verses 9 and 16, and it says that, that all the male and female folks in Noah's family, and one male and one female of each living thing on the earth, entered the ark, ark as the Lord had commanded Noah. Obedience is the central feature of Noah, and Noah is known as a man of faith because of his obedient action in light of what God had told him. Faith in God will lead us to obey God. And Noah like, is just living out what he had been living out. Noah, like his great-grandfather before him, walked a divergent path, choosing to put his trust and faith in the Lord God and to follow where he led. 
He lived his life trusting and hearing the, listening for the voice of God and doing his best to live into that. Noah's faith led to action. Isn't that what James tells us? James tells us that faith without works is, in fact, dead. If I say I believe such and such and my life doesn't align with what I say I believe, do I really believe? I want you to think about it. If I say I believe something and I don't adjust my life to align with said belief, do I really believe? No, I don't. I want you to believe that I believe. And I might think it's a nice thought, but unless that thought moves to action, I don't really have faith. We see that Noah's faith in God led him to faithful action. He obeyed God, just like his grandfather. Faithful action will lead, reveals the need for repentance. You know, we go back to Hebrews chapter 11. And something that sticks out to me is, is what it says after it talks about the no-duh parts of this, right? By faith, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, he built, Noah built an ark to save his family. We know that part of the story. Makes sense? We can go back to Genesis and see all of that play out. But then it subsequently says, By his faith, Noah condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. Well, I don't see any condemnation coming out of Noah. We have no record of Noah condemning the world through his words. But his righteous actions do provide us with a clear contrast and reveal the reality of the wrong thinking in the world around him. Noah didn't so much condemn the world as reveal the reality of the sin that plagued it and also provided a warning of God's coming judgment. Early church fathers, Clement and Origen, both note in their writings that Noah's actions served as a testimony of faith and a call to repentance to the world around him. In 2 Peter 2.5, Peter says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. When we live lives of faith and walk faithfully with the Lord, it will at times cause offense to those who are not. And people will take exception to authentic faith, and it will seem exceptional because faith in our world is the exception. St. Francis is credited with the saying that I've quoted before, preach the gospel wherever you go, and when necessary, use words. And I do think it's necessary, but the reality is that our life does talk. Our actions do speak. And there is a greater sermon that comes from my life Monday through Saturday than what I speak on Sunday in the pulpit. And the truth is that your life is preaching too. And Noah's life preached and preached loudly. Noah's warning was not just an internal thing. It became an external thing. The call for repentance, whether seen in our words or deeds, will feel like condemnation to some and does, in fact, bring light to the consequences of continuing in our sinful ways. But the true aim is to announce God's warning and to call the world to saving faith in the grace of God. It's not just calling out the sickness, but revealing the cure. Noah was given an opportunity. 
you know what? That boat was big. There was nothing stopping others from getting on board, but it was crazy. It was beyond the expectation and understanding of the time. And I think faith is always exceptional because faith is the exception. Sin has plagued humanity from the very beginning, from the first sin, from our first failure. But the good news of the grace of God is that we, like Noah, have been called to join God in the work of repentance and redemption that comes about through, through acceptance of God's good grace. We've been given, like Noah, an invitation to enter into God's salvation. The question is, will we step into that invitation in faith? And if we truly believe it, are we willing to share it? Are we willing to call others to repentance? The sin sickness of Adam and Eve infects our hearts as well. It infects my heart and it infects yours. And without the grace of God bringing about the repentance that we need and changing the orientation of our hearts, we will continue to move in self-destructive ways. It is only by the grace of God that we are given the path of righteousness in which we can walk. And it starts with us confessing our faith in God. It says in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful to ju and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That God is a good God, and if we admit to him the reality of our faults and failures, that he will forgive us. It tells us in Romans 10, 9, that if we declare with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. You see, for us, it doesn't come down to building a big boat. We, we don't have to go chop down trees and build this big thing for everybody to be on. The fact is that God made that for us through the work and person of Jesus Christ. And his shed blood will cleanse us of our sins. It will remove the sickness and mitigate the effects of our sin in order that we might follow God and live into his grace, both now and in the future. The question we must ask ourselves is, do we believe? The invitation has been offered God has made his salvation available to all who would believe. His forgiveness is available to all who would confess their sins. The question for us, and we, we have it in for, before us today, the question is, is will this, this just be a really nice artistic piece of something that we can look at, or, or will it be the truth of life, the words of life, that, the invitation of God that we step into, that we might experience his grace and salvation today and throughout eternity. Father God, I thank you for your goodness and grace for us. I thank you for your great salvation that you've made available to us. Lord, I thank you that though we might fail you time without number, though we wander so easy, easily and, and so pervasively, God, that you have offered to us your great salvation and have called us to repentance. God, I pray that you would help us to step into that salvation, step into your grace, that we would Cease putting faith in ourselves and our own prerogatives and priorities and instead turn our attention to you, the great God of the universe. God, convince us of your goodness. Convince us of your grace. Give us the wisdom to heed your warnings in light of your faithfulness and your holiness. And help us to experience all that you are 
and the full goodness that you offered through the shed blood of your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.